This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Concerning the Bodyguard by Donald Barthelme, which was published in the magazine in 1978. Those young men with dark beards staring at the Mercedes or staring at the Citroën, who are they? The story was chosen by Salman Rushdie, whose fiction and essays have been appearing in the magazine since 1987. His latest book is Luca and the Fire of Life. Hi, Salman. Hi. So you are the third person in maybe 50 podcasts that we've done to immediately ask to read a Donald Barthelme story. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? There's nobody else like him is why it is. And in a strange way, no two of his stories are like each other. So I'm not not surprised, really, because I certainly, when I was a young writer reading the magazine, the stories of Bartholomew were the things that really leapt out. Not always successfully. Sometimes they were just so weird that you couldn't go along with them. But but very often they were kind of mind-blowing because they were so odd and because his way of telling a story was so oblique and so indirect that you had to really, really pay attention just to find out what was going on. And they're funny too. Do you think he had a real influence on a certain generation of writers? Yeah, or or sometimes just an impact, because I I think there is a danger of Bartholomew, that he he makes you think you can do it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And actually you can't do it. Right. Well, he's liberating. Yeah. So, I mean, I remember as a young person finding myself doing what was clearly an imitation of Bartholomew and having to stop myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, Hemingway's like that too. You think you can imitate him and you can't. Bartholomew is even more idiosyncratic, of course, than Hemingway, but Mm -hmm. it's not, you know, you have to leave it to him to do it. And even sometimes he couldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Do you think that that non-writers respond in the same way to Bartholomew as writers? I don't know. I've never been a (laughs) (laughs) Um, non-writer. He seems seems so beloved of writers. Yeah, I do think he is. I I hate to use the term writer's writer, but he he is. I just think it's it's a very particular kind of sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And if it happens to get your funny bone, then it's ridiculously funny. <laughs> <laughs> Back to this story concerning the bodyguard. It's mm-hmm. um, told almost entirely in, in question form. Do you think that there's anything else people should know before they hear you read it? No, except that um, there is a narrative in it, but it's very deeply buried. So mm-hmm. you have to pay attention very carefully to find out what's really happening in the story through all the questions. There's actually a series of events and even an event at the end, but you only learn about it in the most indirect way. Well, we'll talk more after the story. Now here's Salman Rushdie reading Concerning the Bodyguard by Donald Barthelme. Does the bodyguard scream at the woman who irons his shirts, who has inflicted a brown burn on his yellow shirt purchased expensively from Yves Saint Laurent? a great brown burn just over the heart. Does the bodyguard's principal make conversation with the bodyguard as they wait for the light to change in the dull grey Citroën? With the second bodyguard who is driving, what is the tone? Does the bodyguard's principal comment on the tanned young women who flock along the boulevard? On the young men? On the traffic? Has the bodyguard ever enjoyed a serious political discussion with his principal? Is the bodyguard frightened by the initials DIT? Is the bodyguard frightened by the initials CND? 
Will the bodyguard be relieved today in time to see the film he has in mind, Emmanuel Around the World? If the bodyguard is relieved in time to see Emmanuel Around the World, will there be a queue for tickets? Will there be students in the queue? Is the bodyguard frightened by the slogan, Remember 17 June? Is the bodyguard frightened by black spray paint, tall letters, ghostly at the edges, on this wall, on this wall? At what level of education did the bodyguard leave school? Is the bodyguard sufficiently well paid? Is he paid as well as a machinist, as well as a foreman, as well as an army sergeant, as well as a lieutenant? Is the Citroën armoured? Is the Mercedes armoured? What is the best speed of the Mercedes? Can it equal that of a BMW? A BMW motorcycle? Several BMW motorcycles. Does the bodyguard gauge the importance of his principle in terms of the number of bodyguards he requires? Should there not be other cars leading and following his principal's car, these also filled with bodyguards? Are there sometimes such additional precautions? And does the bodyguard at these times feel himself part of an ocean of bodyguards? Is he exalted at these times? Does he wish for even more bodyguards, possibly flanking cars to left and right and a point car far, far ahead? After leaving technical school, in what sort of enterprises did the bodyguard engage before accepting his present post? Has he ever been in jail? For what sort of offence? Has the bodyguard acquired a fondness for his principle? Is there mutual respect? Is there mutual contempt? When his principle takes tea, is the bodyguard offered tea? Beer? Who pays? Can the bodyguard adduce instances of professional success? Had he a previous client? Is there a new bodyguard in the group of bodyguards? Why? How much does pleasing matter? What services does the bodyguard provide for his principle other than the primary one? Are there services he should not be asked to perform? Is he nevertheless asked from time to time to perform such services? Does he refuse? Can he refuse? Are there, in addition to the bodyguard's agreed-upon compensation, tips of what size, on what occasions? In the restaurant, a good table for his principal and the distinguished grey man with whom he is conferring. Before it, between the table with the two principals and the door, a table for the four bodyguards. What is the quality of the conversation between the two sets of bodyguards? What do they talk about? Soccer, perhaps. Holland versus Peru, a match they have all seen. Do they rehearse the savaging of the Dutch goalkeeper Pete Shrivers by the sordid Peruvian? Do they discuss Shriver's replacement by the brave Jan Jongblod and what happened next? Has the bodyguard noticed the difference in quality between his suit and that of his principal, between his shoes and those of his principal? In every part of the country, in large cities and small towns, bottles of champagne have been iced, put away, reserved for a celebration, reserved for a special day. Is the bodyguard aware of this? Is the bodyguard tired of waking in his small room on the Calle Caspe, smoking a royal filtre, then getting out of bed and throwing wide the curtains to discover, again, 
eight people standing at the bus stop across the street in postures of depression. Is there on the wall of the bodyguard's small room a poster showing Bruce Lee in a white robe, with his feet positioned in such and such a way, his fingers outstretched in such and such a way? Is there a rosary made of apple beads hanging from a nail? Is there a mirror whose edges have begun to craze and flake? And are there small, blurish Polaroids stuck along the left edge of the mirror, Polaroids of a woman in a dark blue scarf and two lean children in red pants? Is there a pair of dark blue trousers plus a long-sleeved white shirt worn once already hanging in the dark brown wardrobe? Is there a colour fold-out of a naked young woman torn from the magazine Veer taped inside the wardrobe door? Is there a bottle of Long John Scotch atop the cheese-coloured mini-refrigerator? A two-burner hot plate, dull green ceramic pot on the windowsill containing an unhealthy plant? A copy of Explication du Tai Chi by Bruce Tegner? Does the bodyguard read the newspaper of his principal's party? Is he persuaded by what he reads there? Does the bodyguard know which of the great blocks his country aligned itself with during the Second World War, during the First World War? Does the bodyguard know which countries are the preeminent trading partners of his own country at the present time? Seated in a restaurant with his principal, the bodyguard is served, involuntarily, turtle soup. Does he recoil? as the other eats? Why is this near skeleton his principle of such importance to the world that he deserves six bodyguards, two to a shift, with the shifts changing every eight hours, six bodyguards of the first competence, plus supplementals on occasion, two armoured cars, stun grenades ready to hand under the front seat? What has he meant to the world? What are his plans? Is the retirement age for bodyguards calculated as it is for other citizens? Is it earlier? 55? 45? Is there a pension? In what amount? Those young men with dark beards, staring at the Mercedes, or staring at the Citroën, who are they? Does the bodyguard pay heed to the complaints of his fellow bodyguards about the hours spent waiting outside this or that ministry, this or that headquarters, hours spent propped against the fenders of the Mercedes while their principal is within the secure walls? Is the thick glass of these specially prepared vehicles thick enough? Are his fellow bodyguards reliable? Is the new one reliable? Is the bodyguard frightened by young women of good family? Young women of good family whose handbags contain God knows what? Does the bodyguard feel that the situation is unfair? Will the son of the bodyguard, living with his mother in a faraway city, himself become a bodyguard? When the bodyguard delivers the son of his principal to the school where all of the children are delivered by bodyguards, does he stop at a grocer's on the way and buy the child a peach? Does he buy himself a peach? Will the bodyguard, if tested, be equal to his task? Does the bodyguard know which foreign concern was the successful bidder for the construction of his country's nuclear reprocessing plant? Does the bodyguard know which sections of the National Bank's half-yearly report on debt service have been falsified? 
Does the bodyguard know that the general amnesty of April coincided with the re-arrest of 60 persons? Does the bodyguard know that the new liberalized press laws of May are a provocation? Does the bodyguard patronize a restaurant called The Crocodile, a place packed with young, loud, fat communists? Does he spill a drink to disclose his spite? Is his gesture understood? Are the streets full of stilt walkers? Stilt walkers weaving ten feet above the crowd in great papier-mâché bird heads, black and red costumes whipping thirty feet of coloured cloth above the heads of the crowd, miming the rape of a young female personage symbolising his country. In the Mercedes, the bodyguard and his colleague stare at the hundreds, men and women, young and old, who move around the Mercedes, stopped for a light, as if it were a rock in a river. In the rear seat, the patron is speaking into a telephone. He looks up, puts down the telephone. The people pressing around the car cannot be counted. There are too many of them. They cannot be known. There are too many of them. They cannot be predicted. They have volition. Then an opening. The car accelerates. Is it the case that on a certain morning, the garbage cans of the city, the garbage cans of the entire country, are overflowing with empty champagne bottles. Which bodyguard is at fault? That was Salman Rushdie reading Donald Barthelme's story concerning the bodyguard, which was collected in his book Forty Stories, published by Penguin. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Salman, why do you think Barthelme chose this form for this narrative? Well, it's the whole subject of security, bodyguards, politics, coups, assassinations. You know, it's obviously an area of uncertainty and mystery. And so by using this kind of interrogatory method, he leaves us not knowing what's going on exactly as the bodyguard in the story protecting this man isn't really sure what's going on. He has to look at the world with suspicion. You know, he has, to, he has to really interrogate the world. And so the story interrogates him. Right. So whose questions are these? Are some of them his? Are some of them ours? Are some of them Barthelme's? I think it slides very elegantly between all of those. Yeah. I think, you know, sometimes you seem to be inside his thoughts. 
particularly when he's watching people, when he sees the people at the bus stop or the stilt walkers, or etc. You know, you could well understand the questions to be his questions. Yeah. And, and sometimes they're Barthelmy's and sometimes they're ours. So I think it's all of those. It's interesting. I, I looked at Diane Johnson's review of Barthelmy's stories in the New York Times, and she, she said about this story, an ordinary writer of fiction imagining a bodyguard would give him a name, a past, would follow his life, report his conversations and thoughts, invent a little disturbing event or two to dramatize his spiritual condition and end with a climax of triumph or failure, some moment of bodyguard truth. Barthelmy instead writes six pages of questions, of which the reader, whether he likes it or not, is both the wanderer and must supply the probable answers. Do you find yourself answering the questions as you read? Do you think I think a lot of the them are rhetorical is? and answer themselves. Yeah. You know? um, and, and, of course, there are these hidden things, like, for example, the question of the champagne, mm-hmm. like the important question of the champagne, on which, in fact, the plot hinges. Right. Uh, the first time it suggested to us that there are bottles of champagne being chilled all over the country. And does the bodyguard know about this? You know, <laughs> it's a, it suggests that some kind of conspiracy might be afoot. Yeah. And at the very end of the story, when the empty bottles of champagne are in the garbage, it, it suggests that something successful has happened, yes. that it's a bodyguard's fault. Yeah. So maybe the gentleman that he's protecting has not come to such a good end. Right, right. Uh, and so there, you know, there is actually what Diane Johnson was saying, there actually is an event. Yes. You know, but the event is so submerged <laughs> <laughs> that you could easily fail to notice it. But also entirely essential to the story. Yes, and yeah. told through champagne. <laughs> as, as all good stories should yeah. be. Do you, do you ever find yourself thinking while reading the story that perhaps you could answer no and change the course of events? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, one of the things, reasons I wanted to choose the story is that you know, there was a point in my life where I became very familiar with bodyguards. Right. And so I understand the man, mm-hmm. you know, and the question of whether the car is fast enough as there's a motorcycle or not, you know, these these are important questions. Yeah. And is the bulletproof glass thick enough? These are questions that one asks. Yeah. You know? yeah, and, yeah. and so even though it's not in any conventional sense, as she said in her review, it, it, it's not what an ordinary writer would do. Mm-hmm. It actually is very intelligently inside the worldview of the bodyguard who thinks about these things a lot. Did you get to know your bodyguards? Yeah, I got and... to know them quite well, yeah. Mm. I mean, I still know some of them. Yeah, mm. and this feels... It's one of the strangest aspects of my life is that I ended up with a lot of friends in the secret police. <laughs> <laughs> and this feels germane to their experience? Yeah, I think they would all understand it perfectly. That's what I'm saying. I think yeah. if you actually were a professional bodyguard and were to read this story, you would understand it perfectly. Do you think that we're in a specific situation here? I mean, there are various references to the DIT, the CND, the, the street is a street in, in Barcelona. Mm. Should we be thinking Franco? Should we be thinking any specific political situation? No, I wouldn't try and decode it in that way. I mean, I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's written in code. What I do think is that there is a, a very specific set of events in play here. And there's clearly this person, the principal, is somebody of consequence and appears to be in some sort of real danger. Mm-hmm. And, and there appears to be a mood around him in the society at large, which is hostile to him. Mm-hmm. And it is represented, of course, as only Bartleby could represent it by stilt walkers. 
Yeah. You know, the stilt walkers performing the rape of the country you know, <laughs> around his car. Yeah, yeah. Um, become oddly menacing. Yeah, but also young men with beards. Young men with which beards. Which is a, a prescient Yes, and people, people in attitudes of depression at the bus stop. Yeah. Yeah. He very subtly introduces menace, but it's menace introduced as, as a kind of stylized comedy. Mm-hmm. It's that thing, it's that tone of voice that Bartholomew has, which nobody else has ever come close to, which, is, which can be just ridiculously funny, but also in a way deliberately, willfully obscure, mm-hmm. but in a way that you enjoy. Yeah. I don't know anybody else who makes you enjoy obscurity <laughs> in, in the way that Bartleby does. Well, there's, there's just an odd combination of vagueness and, and detail. Are we in, in a European city or are we in a Bartholomew? Exactly. Where are, land. We? Where are we? I mean, you know, even when he sets things in, in observable cities like Venice, they're not, I mean, they sort of become somewhere else immediately yeah. in his writing. And so he's, a, I mean, I think the only contemporary writer that I could even begin to compare to him would be a writer like Stephen Milhauser, mm-hmm. you know, whose stories have a similar characteristic of strangeness. He's not nearly as as obscure as Bartholomew. He has a more, a more logical environment, yes, even yes, within the strangeness. He does. But I think there's a kind of echo of Bartholomew sometimes yeah. in, Mil- in Milhauser. Maybe there was also a little bit in uh, in Foster Wallace. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a sort of zaniness of Bartleby, yes, mm-hmm. you find, because I mean, this is not the zaniest of Bartleby. It can get very crazy. Yeah, yeah, this has a uh, lot of pathos. Yes. yes. <laughs> a surprising amount. Yeah. I only, I only met him once. I met him at the Penn Festival in the Mailer chaired in, in 1986. Mm-hmm. And I was introduced to him in a, in a hotel suite, and he was colossally drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I therefore thought that I didn't really meet Donald Bartholomew. Right. But, but, but then people who knew him better than I said, no, you did. You met a version <laughs> of him. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are moments in the story where he breaks from questions. You know, that first mm. scene in the restaurant where he gives us the layout of where mm-hmm. they're sitting and then, and then, quite importantly, in that final moment. Why do you think he did that? Well, I mean, in a way, you feel it's slightly disappointing that I mean, he, should, he really should stay in the form but I suppose, given the enormous fluidity of most of the story, he wanted just to have a couple of fixed points, you know, that this, mm-hmm. is, this is actually happening here and that's actually happening there. I slightly feel that I wish he had left them as questions. Yeah. I don't think you need it to put in that kind of um, declaratory form. Yeah, I mean, it seemed as though there were a few moments where he needed to give us a layout that he couldn't quite express. Yes, that, that he way. couldn't put it into a question. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Are there stilt walkers around the car? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I feel as though um, I'm not quite sure always what the purpose of the story is. Is he is he trying to get us into the mind of this bodyguard? Is he trying to humanize this person who's normally silently hovering in the background? Or is it something else? I mean, are you meant to feel sympathy for this figure? I don't think it's exactly sympathy. I think you're meant, you're, you are meant to see how he sees the world. But I think it's really that in very often in Bartholomew, what he seems to be doing to us is to try and push us out of our conventional way of seeing and to experience the world in in another way. I think a lot of his stories do that. That it's 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 I think that's if there's a purpose in in the kind of manner of Bartholomew. I think it is it's that um, surrealist idea of making it strange, of making us unable to see the world in our normal way, but uh, asking us 
what if you looked at it this way? Mm-hmm. What if you looked at it that way? And what if you pulled this, this secondary character into the foreground? Yeah, and then didn't know anything about him yes, and, and weren't told anything about and him. And didn't answer any questions. <laughs> exactly. um, is he, do you think that he's meant to be a specific person? You know, with the, there are these details, the rosary over his bed and so on. Or is he just sort of a generalized... Are we seeing a generalized bodyguard with a few details thrown at him? No, I think he's a person. I think he's a person. He's also a person who's concerned about the other people he's with. He doesn't necessarily trust the other bodyguards. Yeah. And then there's a new one. And what's he like? You know, he's obviously very distrustful of the new one. Mm-hmm. So I do think you're looking at a, at a particular person with just a trace of a private life. A, a wife and a son who yeah. are, have gone somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. 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 But clearly he... He has that private life, but it's not relevant to his work. And the story is very much seen, it's about a man at work. Mm-hmm. And the work happens to be, it happens to be very inert in a way, because one of, one of the things that I remember being told was that security was the art of making nothing happen. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if, if something happens, it's gone wrong. Yeah. yeah. You really want nothing. It's a boredom. Yeah. is an important part of security. Mm-hmm. As long as it's boring, <laughs> you're doing your <laughs> you're job. Doing your job. Yeah. If it gets interesting, you're in real trouble. Yeah. So I think there's that, that kind of inertia mm-hmm. in the character, but it's a, it's a good inertia. Mm-hmm. It's the inertia of nothing going wrong. Yeah. Well, he, it's, he's in a way the opposite of a writer. He's yes. a complete failure to dramatize. Exactly. You don't <laughs> want the drama. God forbid there should be drama. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Salman. Thank you. Salman Rushdie is the author of Midnight's Children, The Satanic Verses, Shalimar the Clown, The Enchantress of Florence, and many other books. If you want to hear more podcasts featuring Donald Barthelme, you can download any of the previous 50 episodes of this podcast in the Blackberry Store or in the iTunes Store, where you can also subscribe. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.